The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to talk about diversity and representation in the China-watching space. Now, Sinology, or the study of China, really started to gain popularity as a field going back all the way to the 1970s after Nixon's landmark visit to China, and when that's when China opened up to the world. And that's when also a lot of the greats in the field really started to gain notoriety. And this is in the academic sphere we're talking about. People like John Fairbank from Harvard University, Perry Link from UC Riverside, Jonathan Spence at Yale University, uh, Frederick Wakeman, who was from my alma mater at UC Berkeley, uh, David Shambaugh from the George Washington University, Orville Schell at the Asia Society. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. If you've taken any Chinese political science class over, say, the past 25, 30 years, there's no doubt that you've been assigned to read some of their books. But when you look at the profile of these scholars, there's definitely a consistent theme that kind of starts to emerge very quickly. They're predominantly white and male. And that's also been the case, uh, not just in the United States, but also in Europe as well, where the, the, the academy is very much a closed community and has been for a very long time. Now, back in the 90s and starting in the early 2000s, that started to change a little bit, and we started to see more women coming into the field. Of course, there's our good friend Deborah Braudigam at Johns Hopkins University, Elizabeth Economy, who's now at the Hoover Institute, and uh, Bonnie Glazer at CSIS in Washington. And that China watching space and the China scholar space started to expand, but still predominantly white. But today, the situation is really different because Sinology isn't just something that's done at universities anymore. It's evolved into a whole new space with a lot more people and it kind of evolved into this space called China watchers. And that's a broad word for it. And that includes journalists, think tankers, financial analysts, uh, and Kobus, people like you and me who kind of fit into a bunch of those different buckets. And that's allowed the discourse to broaden and to be much more inclusive. And it's really a great time now because there are so many new voices bringing badly needed new perspectives into the discussion about China. And this goes even beyond race. There are more voices from the Global South, like some of our recent podcast guests that we've had, Abhishek Mishra from India, Elijah Munyi from Kenya, Rashid Griffith from Barbados. There are a lot more young people in the space, so it's not just old white guys anymore. And of course, there are a lot more women who are really shaking things up for the better. So Kobus, a long overdue trend and one that is extremely exciting. Yes, definitely. I mean, you know, if, if there is a, a new Cold War, which, you know, is, is like I'm always a bit worried about kind of throwing around that term. But if there is a new Cold War, it's going to look a lot different from the old Cold War. You know, the, the old Cold War happened in a moment of decolonization, with a lot, you know, in Africa, particularly with lots of little armies that, was, that were relatively e easy and cheap to fund by, by external actors like the Soviet Union. In the, the you know, the, the new conflict 
aspect would be a lot more about on a lot more global scale, but then also a lot more about issues like standards, um, all kinds of technological standards, um, and you know, so so and the the way that these countries are gonna are gonna choose sides will also be very different. So you know, I think it's really important for Africa to 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 work out a strategy at least about where they want to be facing if if this happens. So one of the groups that's helping to foster this and really push it along is the Black China Caucus. Now, it's a group that launched last year and just this month now celebrating its one-year anniversary, so happy birthday. And what it does is it gives voice to Black China professionals and provide more opportunities to those who've historically been excluded from the discussion about China. And we are thrilled to have two of the group's leaders with us today to mark this really wonderful occasion. Keisha Brown is a co-founder of BCC and also an assistant professor of history at Tennessee State University in Nashville, where she's in the Department of Political Science and Africana Studies. Among her various research fields include the study of Afro-Asian diaspora communities and Blackness and Sino-African relations. A very good morning to you, Professor Brown. Good morning, good morning, and uh, uh, thank you for this uh, invitation to the podcast, and a special shout out to my fellow uh, Tennessee State University people, and, and greetings to the Department of History, Political Science, Jack, and Africana Studies. It's an honor to be here this morning. Well, we're thrilled to have you here today, and you're joined also by Avanda Fogan, who's the Executive Vice President of BCC and now works in the educational sector in Washington, D.C. Avanda has an extensive background in U.S.-China relations after working for four years in the U.S.-China Strong Foundation. And she's also a fellow Mandarin speaker. A very good morning to you, Avanda. Good morning, Eric. And thank you and Kovis for having us on the show. Really appreciate it. And want to say hello to fellow Black China Caucus leadership, Mark Akpeninye and Michael Ford. Excellent. And and we want to give a shout out to Mark, who helped to make today's show and connect us with you guys. So we're very grateful for Mark. And Mark has been a guest on our program. Uh, So go back into our archives and you can hear the episode with him. Uh, Keisha, let's get started with you about kind of the problem that you are trying to address. I kind of alluded to some of it in broad strokes in the introduction, but let's kind of identify what was the problem that BCC was really trying to get at and resolve? Uh, thank you for that question. Um, so when we, uh, Mark and I began having conversations um, last year, it came out as what we were just kind of noting that we kind of had some similar or kind of overlapping anecdotal experiences about being Black in China. Um, our experiences both in China, but also our experiences being um, Black in the China space more broadly in terms of our professional backgrounds. And so while we were in different fields, I'm more so in academia, he's in the political space, it was still some overlapping kind of concerns where we were trying to address. And so the, the questions we're having is, uh, one, um, is there a net work. One thing that we both kind of mentioned is that we both uh, in some ways felt like we were in a silo where in your professional space, you might be the only one. You feel you're the only one in that space or one of a few, not really knowing if there are other people in some ways who are doing this work as well. Um, Also, the other question we're having is um, how people get into the China space and thinking about exposure and where can we address those questions of both not exposure, but also also, um, support. So in people, how we can support and have retention and also there's a question in terms of the pipeline. Um, how do we think about getting more people into this space? Where should we start? And should we start with, you know, college students? Should we start a little bit later? What should we do in some ways to address some of these questions to where, um, one, there are people who are doing the work, but two, in many cases, 
why are we not, you know, why is there not necessarily a collective or a network in a shared space? And three, how can we get more people to do this work? How can we in some ways diversify the China space a bit more to include more voices who are doing the work and bring more perspectives to the ongoing conversations, especially considering the ways in which China is growing and it's going to be a, a presence um, moving forward. How do we think about um, the voices in those particular spaces and conversations? Vonda, how, how did um, BCC decide to tackle this this problem? Yeah, I mean, BCC decided to tackle this problem basically through how it's organized, right? Like this is a collaborative effort. So when Mark and Keisha looped me and Michael Ford in, they knew our background and knew that we had a little bit of experience in the field and brought our networks with us. And, you know, just there's always the joke of like black people in the China space, no other black people in the China space. So we were able to kind of call on our friends. And once the domino effect started to happen, more folks were thanking us for creating Black China Caucus. And now we have over 140 members. And through the number of offerings that we have, one, we have this pilot mentorship program that really is um, an awesome way for Black China specialists to get connected, not necessarily to other Black China experts, but China experts, period, so they can start to nurture um, the current Black China hands and make sure that they're being set up for success. And then with our China 101 offering, this is an intentional community speaking to the pipeline that Keisha was talking about, designed for undergraduate and graduate students who want to enhance their exposure and opportunities in the China field, but just need a little bit more direction. So that's a really great program that we're starting to work on as well. And as these offerings are becoming more robust, um, we'll constantly be examining the issue and figuring out ways that we can um, increase the enhancement of black voices on China. Very quickly, Avanda, when you say undergraduate and graduate students, are you talking predominantly or only in the United States or does this also take place in other countries as well? It's international, so taking place in other countries as well. Okay, that's very interesting. And also, when we talk about the Black China Caucus, it's not necessarily linked to, say, China, Caribbean, China, Africa, the traditional spheres of where Black scholars would be. We're talking about Black and China in the whole space of what China is, right? Worldwide. Exactly, exactly. And with our logo, actually, um, if you see it on our website... It's the black fist and then the character, hey, on top of it. And the fire radical underneath hey represents the four fingers on the fist. And we specifically decided to use Heiren instead of, you know, some of the other African diasporic characters like Megul Heiren, Fei or Feijoren, because hey includes like the rich diversity of individuals who self-identify as black, who have roots originating from across the world. You know, so, so since you since you um, started your work, um, you know, can can you tell us a little bit about um, about the kind of community that that you've gathered? Like where where you know, kind of like how how wide does it spread? Like what which kind of people do um, does it include? Avonda, maybe you can take that question. Yeah, so going to our directory of professionals page on the website, you can see all the different um, pictures of our professionals and hovering over their pictures, you can see sort of like their locations and their focus. And I mean, I have not noticed a trend. There are so many different areas of focus, whether it's Africa-China related, cybersecurity, development, um, Sino-Black relations, someone studying jazz and um, its effect in China. So this is just a snapshot 
of our professionals, which really just shows the rich diversity of our Black professionals covering all aspects of China and not just being focused on a singular issue. Keisha, in the introduction, I mentioned that the academic space that you're in historically has been white. And at one point, it was exclusively white. And that was the only way it was. Today, what is the situation when you look at the Sinology community within the the academic space? Is there more diversity? Is it getting better? Or are we still have a lot of those those historical kind of hangovers that that that, that predominate? Thanks for that question. The historical uh, the historical trends are still part of uh, the main the kind of the, the fabric of the field. Um, I will say that there have been more concerted efforts institutionally um, that happened since last um, last summer that have been very much about how to change those trends. Um, I just want to speak specifically to uh, one organization that very much um, helps to shape the field, which is Association for Asian Studies. And it was last year that a group of scholars um, who represent not just Sinology, um, more specifically. But also other spaces in Asian studies who wrote a petition. And it was a petition that really put steam behind some different initiatives to where it's been an ongoing effort because you have to have the institutional uh, awareness and wherewithal to also push these, move, uh, these moves forward. And so I will say that um, there has been change. There has been more um, proactive and concerted efforts and ongoing efforts since last spring um, to really think about how we change the space. But there is still that hangover where you think about the ways in which the field is shaped. And so I will say that there is changing. Um, there are more, um, I will say one of the changes we noticed that there are more women. Um, and this might sound crazy to say, but there are more women who are from China who are Chinese origin, which is crazy to say that in the Asian study space, in the China study space, you don't have uh, that particular demographic being robust, but it's changing now as well. And also scholars, not just black scholars, but also more Latinx scholars as well. And so there is more change, there's more awareness, but we still have uh, a ways to go. And I'm just hoping that um, these institutions, uh, not just the larger organizations like Association of Asian Studies, but also other programs other individual institutions, other programs themselves are really thinking about how do we also push and keep uh, initiatives moving forward beyond this particular moment. Keisha, picking up on that, it's changing, but slowly. And I'm just wondering, do non-white scholars face active discrimination in getting their ideas published, participating in panels, getting onto, you know, getting promotions? Is it active discrimination or is it more subtle and passive that's just been exclusionary as it has been in the past for so long? Um, so I can't speak to everyone, but I know from my experience, it was subtle. Um, so even uh, so just thinking about when I began my research in grad school um, back in, in 2007, it was the idea of, you know, is there an audience for this work? Is this research even necessary? Um, and having to push to even get my research done, right? So those kind of moments where it's like, well, what's already there kind of fall into this ideas of, we want you to produce new scholarship, but it's also going to be scholarship that in some ways has an audience. And so um it's been one where it's been subtle um, in different ways where it's been exclusionary, um, but it's also one where it's not just in terms of race, it's also in terms of thinking about different institutions and where the funding goes and what funding is supporting certain research or new ideas or certain scholars. And so it's been in those ways where there's not been a concerted um, real evaluation or a real introspection until um, I will say in these last uh, year or so where there's been real conversations about how do we think about the ways in which our own institutions have our own bias 
legacies and what does that mean in terms of admittance of students or thinking about when we give funding packages, what is the funding goal? Or even thinking about all these other ways in which different um, ways in which we've been subtle and it's been exclusionary, but how do we think about addressing those as well? Think about if you think about the ideas of where it's been the kind of academic, academic micro, microaggressions, if you will, like it's the ways in which how academia functions and how there have been ways in which scholars have been excluded or you have a one of in some cases. And it's been a very uh, interesting experience, but I will say it is, um, I'm changing because I had to have conversations with um, more grad students who don't just do China work, but also in edge studies. And I have more students I see now been able to pursue their research and they're getting support. And so it's slowly changing, but just to know that there is an effect that's happening where there's gonna be a new wave of students who are coming through that can be really, really, uh, see some really great um, scholarship that's gonna add to the field in some really amazing ways. You know, linking onto, onto that, um, both of you work in, in the education space and um, I've seen several reports over the last year or so, like year or two, um, saying that that enrollments of, of American students studying Chinese language, but also Chinese studies, are, that they're plummeting. Um, and, and some are linking it to, to the kind of current kind of hostile U.S.-China relationship. Um, are you, are both of you seeing that on the ground? Like, you know, how, how, how do the kind of demographic makeup and the, the kind of student numbers as a whole look at the moment? So I have to take a part of the question, and I'm happy to have uh, Avanda also um, uh, add her uh, perspective. Um, in terms of the numbers, overall, the trend we have seen in terms of national trends, it is going down. But I have seen in different programs that is going up in specific programs, or there is a creation of new programs in many cases. Um, while I think there is a connection to um, the anti-Asian sentiments that we're seeing as a result of kind of the ways in which COVID-19 was talked about perceived and in some ways those narratives that replicated um, in many areas in uh, the United States, I do see that there is a connection to that as well, but also to um, the ways in which there's also um, institutional funding and where is funding going. Um, so not just in terms of anti-Asian sentiments, but also um, some of the institutions, they're losing uh, funding due to changes in enrollment. And so in many cases, sometimes, unfortunately, area studies programs are the ones that are the first ones to go. So there's also connection in terms of institutional funding and where the funding is going, unfortunately, and how that also leads to a loss of some time, some programs. And so um, while there might be numbers that are decreasing, there are institutions and programs that are also building new initiatives. And so they're trying to build new programs, um, ourselves included at Tennessee State, we're trying to build an Asian Studies certificate. So there is a both, uh, there's two sides to, the, to this uh, dynamic and we can see the ways in which the overall trend might be decreasing, but that does not mean that there is no interest. It's just a number of, uh, is it the access to the programs or to languages or what's happening in terms of those particular areas. Yeah, everything that Keisha mentioned is spot on. Um, when I was working at 100,000 Strong Foundation, later becoming US China Strong Foundation, um, I started there in 2015. And just for a little context, this initiative was um, out of the Obama administration and State Department. And the goal was to get 100,000 Americans studying Mandarin to strengthen the US-China relationship, right? So this people-to-people -people diplomacy aspect. And so the organization became a nonprofit and there was a lot of support behind it. We reached the 100,000 strong goal. And you know, in 2016, 2017, as the hostility between the US and China started to get a bit intense, we did notice that folks were starting to kind of pull out of the China space. And um, just because there was a lot of unclear 
um, projections into the future and maybe just wasn't as stable anymore. Um, That said, what Keisha mentioned about pockets of groups still kind of holding on to that interest definitely still remains. But I think there needs to be more initiatives similar to 100,000 Strong again coming out um, with different ways to increase the access to opportunities to study China, to study in Chinese, and keeping up that momentum. Um, so we're trying to do that with Black China Caucus, right? Building the pipeline, especially in Black youth, um, to let them know, like, one, that's an option, and that this is a space that people should definitely continue to stay interested in since. Um, you know, everyone's saying that this is going to be the most important bilateral relationship in this half of the 21st century. So definitely trying to increase access to China, China, China related programs and making sure that we are um, also contributing to that. I'm just wondering if that's gotten a lot more difficult, even just in the past year that the Black China Caucus has been around. I'm looking at the latest Pew numbers that came out from the Pew Global Research Organization, and now anti-China sentiment in the United States is approaching historical highs. 61% of Democrats have a negative view, 79% of Republicans uh, have a negative view, and that doesn't look like it's going to go down anytime soon. Do you think that's going to make the mission to to fill that pipeline of Vonda much more difficult because... You know, you go. You're in school, and you tell your parents, "I want to study Chinese," and it's just not a popular thing anymore to do. It's also it's more difficult to get jobs in China. The visas are harder to get. We had the situation in Guangzhou last year that discouraged maybe a lot of people of thinking that there's a big racist issue in China, or at least in some parts of China. So all of these things add up to make it more difficult to persuade and get people excited about studying Chinese and engaging in Chinese affairs. Avanda, what do you do to tell people? that this is a time where we actually need more people to be engaged in China affairs? Uh, That's a really great question. I think using the momentum of what's happening globally with the Black Lives Matter movement um, and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement this past summer, activist activism is transnational, right? There are activists in every country. I think um, students who are activists, Black activists in the States, recognize that their fellow brothers and sisters in China are facing similar um, discrimination from Chinese government, other Chinese folks at times. And I think there's this nexus here where this can be seen as some sort of people-to-people diplomacy in a way because you're reaching across borders to unite with folks with a similar mission, right? Like to empower black people and make sure that interest align in a way that they can have a better experience wherever they are globally. So I think um, since activism is transnational, that's a way to increase the interest in China of people who want to do that, but without putting their personal values or interests aside. Keisha, I'd like to circle back to your point about the the, the challenge of getting Chinese women into into Chinese studies. Um, so, just for context, um, I come originally come from uh, a Japanese studies background, and I um, I did my I was in grad school in Japan, um, and there got to know. A kind of the kind of dirty secret of of particularly English language and Euro- European language um, Asia studies, which is that so frequently 
um, some of the the kind of white male stars of the field, like uh, they get incredible levels of support frequently from from Asian spouses. And so, particularly in terms of editing language, helping them with translation, like checking checking their their kind of writing in Chinese or Japanese. Um, and you know, so 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 I, I I slowly kind of became aware that how much of of uh, European and Western Asian studies, you know, is it rests on the on the on the back of this kind of invisible labor coming from from women. Um, so I was wondering, like, how that problem is standing now from from your perspective. I'm part of another um, particular initiative, and we were, and I was able to be um, part of uh, and, and kind of get information from a particular data set. We're looking at the field of China studies more broadly, thinking through the last, say, 30, 40 years. And we noticed that, you know, in 30 years ago, while the questions about, you know, um, female, you know, about women, about Chinese women were being talked about, it was not necessarily through Chinese female scholars doing the work or the ways in which they were not necessarily always getting funding or supported. Um, the question of invisible labor goes to a lot of not just in terms of um Chinese women in the China space, but also uh, women more broadly in the academic space. Um, we think about the ways in which, um, you know, the idea of invisible labor, how do we in some ways calculate that, how we find ways to um, record that, especially in terms of um, not only those of us who are in tenure track positions now, but also giving uh, recognition to the support systems that in some ways sustain us as well. Um, I have, I know that I've seen and, and have heard rumors about, you know, the ways in which different scholars have relied on um, their spouses to help them, but that is, I think their bigger question is, um, in some ways, how do we think about giving credit to the labor that's being done? How do we find ways to give credit to the invisible labor? How do we amplify those voices of the people who are doing the work? And it's always, in many cases, it relies um, very much falls onto uh, female um, scholars or female uh, or women in the field who are doing the work. And I think for me, um, this kind of ties back into the previous question, thinking about the difficulties of being Black in the China space, how do we keep people coming? In my research, Black women have been doing the labor. Um, people like Unita Blackwell or Mabel Williams or, you know, Vicki Garvin, they were doing the work and it was until other scholars kind of pulled their archives out and found them that we in some ways were able to think about it. So I think there is a question about how do we in some ways think about who is uh, the archivist? who is the Asianist and how do we engage in these conversations and give credit to the labor? Because no academic, I'll be honest, we don't do it alone. You have a support system. No one can do this by themselves. And so finding ways to give recognition to that labor and in some ways honoring the labor that supports the research and supports the ways that the field is growing. So to see that more women are able to come into the space and be um, able to present their own work or be able to say, yes, I was part of this initiative, this part of this project, I think is really great. I think it's also great because now we're recognizing, especially academia, the fact that it does have to be more collaborative. No one is doing this by themselves. How we think collaborative across the board. And I think that's also allowing more voices to be uh, amplified in this space, including the people who are doing some of the fact checking and who are doing the translations or who are assisting in doing the archival work. And so I'm hopeful that this trend of really recognizing and honoring the people who are doing the labor um, continues in this space. Mm -hmm. No, I agree on that. Uh, so much of the issues that you're trying to address and that you're working on with the Black China Caucus, as you've pointed out in our discussion, are deeply rooted in historical wrongs and historical exclusion. And, and there's a phrase that uh, Hannah Ryder, who is the CEO of the Beijing-based consultancy Development Reimagined, that she uses on Twitter quite a bit, uh, she says decolonizing development. And 
She doesn't really go into detail about what the actual precise definition is of decolonizing development, but every time she uses it, it's in reference to kind of the old way of thinking, which was all shaped by white people. And it's a mindset in many ways that's a hung that's hung over again, as I said, from historical exclusion. And also just because when only the same kinds of people are in the room together, you get to think in that groupthink kind of way. So putting it in the context of decolonizing development, which I love the phrase, uh, Keisha, first I'd like to hear from you, but also then Avanda from you as well, about what things like BCC are doing to to really shake up and challenge those notions that decolonizing decolonizing development is trying to do. Oh, so that's again, it's another great question. So, um, in terms of the BCC, and also in terms of just the work that we're doing, I think one of the great um, initiatives, initiatives too, in some ways, to kind of the initiatives that we have, the outreach programs, is one letting people know that there are. Black China experts. Um, Avanda mentioned the phrase earlier, Black China hands. And this was a whole conversation where, and you know, in many cases, there are Black uh, individuals who shape the US-China relationship. They were never given that honorific of being called a China hand, which is a nice way of saying they're an expert. So to call and use the language and to some with even shake the language and say, yes, we have these Black experts, these Black China hands who are doing the work. And to know that they're there in a variety of spaces, just even our directory alone, that was kind of our first uh, initiative and in compiling that and getting the survey out. And that really informed us that like, there is a community here that wants this. And so so now that we've realized it's not just us in terms of Black China experts, we have also gotten um, support and requests and interest from other external institutions that are also very much entrenched in the China space to say, oh, we now know if we do, you know, we want to reach out and see how we can find someone. How can we diversify our conversations? How can we diversify our panels for different conferences? How can we diversify our think tank spaces? To know that there are people there. And so one, just the idea of just having a space so we want identify and amplify and promote all of our members, even through the directory. It sounds simple, but just that initiative itself is a lot of work. In terms of the call development as well, the idea of what we're doing in terms of engaging in other conversations, the language we're doing, you know, calling our experts Black China hands, recognizing them as experts that they are, or the budding experts, um, finding ways to sharpen their skills to where when they get to those spaces, they also in some ways are, you know, as much as prepared as possible, but also knowing they have a community where they're not alone as well. And so I think for the idea of the colonizing development is the colonizing in terms of diversity in this field, is diversity in terms of who's able to speak and be part of conversations, who's been invited to these conversations, but also diversifying the ways we think about the China space, thinking about from my experience, from academic space, how do we decolonize the syllabus? That was my common conversation. We talk about modern Chinese history. Why is there not a section in the Maoist period talking about this moment? Why is there not a section in contemporary Chinese uh, studies talking about these particular moments in a section? So even thinking through um, in particular fields beyond the BCC as well, but also in academia, how do we decolonize our syllabus to be more inclusive? What are we teaching our students? And how does that also lead into uh, feeding into the Black China Caucus and these new students who can be potential members and mentees and members of the BCC. Yeah, just to add on to what Keisha said so well, um, decolonizing development. There's usually someone who is superior, someone who's inferior, and the inferior folks have to assimilate to the superior folks' culture. Black China Caucus is all about community building, which is something that is not in the, decol just in the development field. And through this community building, we are enhancing and encouraging Black folks at all levels. We're not prioritizing people who already have China experience. We're not prioritizing people who don't, but just 
meeting people in the middle, but then also trying to create programs for folks on the margins as well. Um, since this truly is a collaborative effort, our members, if they reach out to us and want to get involved in programming, want to be on the leadership team, we welcome them because while we did technically create this organization, it's all of ours organization and everyone has an equal say, input into whatever we're doing and want to make sure that we're always highlighting our members. Keisha was talking about you know, recognition and giving credit where it's due. And that's definitely one of our values, especially collaboration. I want to ask all three of you, actually, um, over the last while I've seen on Twitter and on China Watcher Twitter, there's been a, a big a big debate about uh, about the specific kind of benefit and, and role of, of, of being fluent in Mandarin in, in relation to being a China Watcher. Um, so, you know, I, on the one hand, it seems like a no-brainer. Obviously, kind of like speaking Mandarin and reading Mandarin will be better as a China Watcher than not speaking it. But at the same time, I was wondering, like, how it affects the kind of advice you give to people who are interested in getting into the field do you like are you like well you know get a notebook and start practicing those characters or like you know kind of how, how do you kind of talk with them about the about the role of of studying mandarin rather than you know which which is its own lifelong job you know kind of rather than particularly you know kind of focusing on on chinese economics or whatever else they're interested in focusing on um, so I will say that, um, so uh, <laughs> these two hop to my lap. I'll take it, I'll try to take it. Um, so I will say that this is a question where um, I think there are, like you mentioned, there are benefits to speaking Mandarin and learning Mandarin and being access to those programs. Myself, um, speaking Mandarin in a lot of my research, I do use the Chinese resources because it helps to kind of think through, um, give a more nuanced perspective. But I think for us, it's more of a question of how do we in some ways, as Avanda mentioned, you know, how do we find people and meet them where they are? Um, you know, and we have students who come in who, um, for instance, uh, I know I have students who I've met along the years teaching where they might have an interest in China or they might have taken a year or two here, but then they wanted some ways how do I think about using this and so sometimes it's where you meet students where they are you meet people where they are and say you know how do you want to get involved because one thing has come up for many of us um just thinking through our China stories, most of us kind of just fell into it. We fell into it. Like there was some experience, there was some exposure, there was some moment where it opened opportunity and we then became China watchers in some other way. It might not have been our plan, but this is what we are. And then once we got into that space, we thought about, okay, how do I enrich this space? How do I enrich my experience? So I will say that language development is very important to be a space, but I will say don't use language as a barrier. I think that idea of having access to language, language programs, you're not using as a barrier, if meet people they are and say, be interested, then follow these up in different ways. I think there is a duality. There's a, a nice way to think about this question in terms of, yes, it might help. It helps long and depending on what you want to do with it, but also don't use language as a means to exclude people, how that has been also been an exclusionary moment. So how do we think about learning language and how do we use that as a means of whatever your experience is, how have you got to this space? How do we in some ways engage you and in some ways encourage you to your development? And if that includes language development, then how do we think about that and encourage that as well? Yes, this contentious question. Um, so similar to what Keisha said about not letting the language limit your thinking in terms of how you can engage with China, right? I think is it's relatively new thinking. If you had asked me this question in 2014, I would have said, you must study the language, you must learn it. Um, because I think the way Mandarin is taught 
is in tandem with Chinese history and Chinese culture. So you're not learning characters blindly. There's a story that comes with all of it. But I think with how the world has changed and just exposure to Chinese culture, there are other ways you can get that, whether it's through social media, um, through reading, you know, maybe going on um, a Chinese program, a Chinese trip. I know a handful of folks who just went to China because they were interested in it and they have the, you know, wanderlust and like to travel and then kind of learned about the culture in that regard. So I think there are definitely different ways to get to it. And like Keisha said, maybe attempting to learn the language at some point would just help further your studies. I think the first toe that you stick into the water doesn't necessarily need to be through the language um, route. Yeah, I'm, I'm of two minds of this because I, and I can see everything that you guys have said. I 100% agree. It should never be a barrier. Uh, I'll just speak from my own personal experience that I am very grateful that I that, I, that I've committed so much time to speak the language because I, it allows me to get one step further just to have conversations with people that you can just talk and get to know them as people. And for me, that is something that has been so valuable. Just every day I can pick up the phone and, and call any number of people just to say, what's going on? What does this mean? And that allows me to get past some of the headlines. That being said, I've seen so many great journalists, scholars, just observers, China watchers who don't speak Chinese and do amazing analysis. And so Kobus, I see that debate on Twitter, and you see people like Sean Rain, who is a provocateur in China, who kind of says, if you don't speak Chinese, then you have no qualification to be a China watcher, and you shouldn't be in the space at all. And I think that's, I think he's just trying to provoke people to, to get into this fight, but I, I, I don't, I mean, I think it's bogus, because I think as, as both Avanda and Keisha have said, there's, there's great voices from all, from all sides on this. And it's also interesting because, uh, Keisha, we're seeing a lot more benefit of you know, in the black China space of this engagement in China coming out of Africa. And in part because we're seeing 80 to 90,000 students now every year going to Africa. Those are pre-COVID numbers. Huge numbers of students going to Africa. And they come out of, I'm sorry, going to China. And they're coming out of their China experience, oftentimes speaking fluently with a really good understanding of, of Chinese culture, language, politics, the whole thing from just living there. And they come back to Africa and they're enriching the space back in Africa. And I'm curious about, are you seeing in the Black China Caucus a, a growing interest from, from African students and scholars and professionals because of their exposure to China, and they've had the opportunities to go there? Bear in mind that very few Africans now can come to the United States because of the visa restrictions. So the growth in this space may come from Africa. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's not just necessarily um, just in terms of the African countries um, that make up the continent, but also um, there's now more China engagement in the Caribbean as well. As you mentioned, you mentioned you talked with Rashid and also I know um, I did a podcast with Leland Lazarus and he was at the time in, Bar in Barbados. And so I know there is a growth in those spaces as well, these countries. And so I think that is a new area of growth and I'm really excited about it because it's adding to the richness and it's also in some ways adding to uh, the conversations because in many ways in which the scholarship about China and African nations has been published or talked about, it seems like a one-sided or like it's a lopsided conversation. And so these individuals who are learning Chinese, we can see they have clear programs starting from in many schools, kindergarten on up, where they have you know, Chinese language competitions, they are fluent. And so it's adding to the richness of this conversation and it's also adding to the ways in which this conversation is have a more um, nuanced conversation, nuanced perspective, because the idea of it's not just one-sided, 
not just one being a beneficiary and one being a, a receiver. It's also the idea of there's more happening in these spaces in terms of the engagement and how this can on some way see as an important space. So I am excited to see um, where this is going to go. I'm excited to see this development because it's going to in some ways really think through because in my own research, I look at uh, China, Africa and their relationships going back to like the 1960s. Um, and so for me, it's like, this is a nice, an amazing development to kind of in some ways enhance that known no narrative. And again, the idea of how language can be useful, um, but at the same time thinking through how this has been accessed. Um, I think it's also in some ways shaping or in some ways challenging some of the notions as well about the ways in which um, we think about um, Africa's engagement with the world, thinking about the continent more broadly. And I think this is some ways also changing that narrative and thinking about um, the position or the ways when you kind of frame Africa or African nations and its people to really in some way show their agency and their activism engaging with China as one particular place of activism and an educational um, uh, and an educational advancement. And it's also important because it shows a lot of diversity within the Black community that the African perspective on these issues is very different than the African-American or Caribbean uh, perspectives or Black European perspectives. And so I think that's really neat to get all of those different points of view. Kobus, last question to you. You know, so, so much of, of the way that, that Sinology and China watching as, as, as a wider kind of industry kicked off in, in, in Western countries has been about, uh, you know, kind of explaining China to the West or, you know, kind of tracking different aspects of, of, of different Asian countries and then translating it for, for a Western audience, you know, in, in a larger kind of project of, of enhancing kind of Western understanding of, of, the, rest of, the, of the, the rest of the world. Um, is, that, is that tendency being challenged in the field? And, and you know, to which extent, like, where, where is the field as a whole going? Um, and is it, is it possible for it to, to evolve beyond that kind of, you know, West keeping track of keeping tabs on everything kind of towards a, a kind of a more shared understanding of a wider set of experiences. Yeah, Kobus, thank you for asking that question. Um, so much of how we receive history is from Western context. And as we know, that's not the only perspective. I think organizations like ours, Black China Caucus, just trying to increase visibility of other voices is broadening the conversation. And now that we are encouraging this comprehensive understanding of China, it will no longer be inadequate, right? If you don't have the full picture, it's not whole. And by increasing the presence of black voices, Latinx voices, non-traditional, you know, Western voices, we are finally giving a, a fuller picture of China which can only enhance the U.S.-China relationship and foreign policy and ultimately just match with the times, right? Like the world is globalizing and the Western perspective is starting to become archaic. So this is just one of the ways that we're doing that. Some housekeeping things before we say goodbye, because I know you guys are starting out your day and we don't want to keep you for too long. Okay, first, if people want to become a member of the Black China Caucus, what do they do? Who can qualify? Tell us a little bit about the parameters to become a part of your community. Yvonne, first to you on that. 
Yeah, so for anyone who identifies as black, whatever that means to them, they can go to our website, blackchinacaucus.org or .com and join our directory of professionals. And by joining the directory of professionals, you can answer some questions about what your focus is, a little bit of demographic questions, and you can be included on our public list or you can choose to be private and you'll automatically be added into our listserv and receive different opportunities from us, whether that's internships, jobs, um, the different offerings that we have around China 101 to increase your understanding of China or the mentoring program. Um, so joining our directed professionals is definitely the best way to do that. Okay. And Keisha, if people want to engage the community, that is, they want to, journalists want to find experts, think tanks want to find panelists, people want to hire and recruit, how do they do that? Uh, so thank you. So again, just to echo um, what Ivana said, you know, go to the website, uh, blackchinacaucus.org or blackchinacaucus.com and go to the contact us and it goes to our email. Uh, and we are very um, trying to be astute about how to make sure we get um, respond to those. If you want to send us an opportunity, you want to send a request, please go and do the con and go to contact us. And we will um, uh, and we will always make sure that we try to address any invitations or any opportunities that come through our um, Black China Caucus inbox. And and if people want to follow you on social media, just to keep on top of everything the group is doing, what's the best way to do that? Um, so we do have a Twitter page and we do have a Twitter um, site. So if you follow us uh, on Black China Caucus, um, we are on Twitter as well. It is um, the handle um, uh, at, hash, at BLK, all capital, uh, China Caucus. So we are also on Twitter. So again, at uh, capital B, capital L, capital K, China Caucus. So you can find us on Twitter. And are you on Twitter personally? I am on Twitter. <laughs> okay. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing, you know, with academics, I don't always know because you guys some are on some are not so this is a new space uh, for us. where can so people we're, find we're you learning how to use twitter as a new means because we're like wait we can use twitter i mean it was so crazy we're even thinking about um writing academic blogs was like is this for tenure for not and it's like changing the question about you know we got to move away from just the tenure conversation but i am on twitter um i do promote different events that i'm uh, speaking at and so my twitter handle is at uh doc doc k brown 85 it's not that original okay, but that's me and Avanda, are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. I mostly tweet about The Bachelor, but starting to increase my... <laughs> <laughs> That's fun too, okay. <laughs> um, but I also tweet every now and then about diversity issues in the China space. So my handle is at the letter A, the letter S, and my last name, Fogan. Okay, so we will put links to all of the Twitter accounts. We'll put links to the Black China Caucus website. I also want to draw people's attention to New Voices. That's nuvoices.com. That is the companion site to what Black China Caucus is doing uh, in the black community, but for women. And they have a fantastic directory of expert voices, and they are an amazing resource as well to diversify and, again, decolonize this conversation to add in those voices that have historically been excluded. Avanda, Keisha, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Congratulations on one year of the Black China Caucus. We're really looking forward to speaking with you again and engaging the community even more. And we just really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. Yes, thank you so much for this awesome conversation, Eric and Kovas. Kovas, that was a thrill for me. I've been following Keisha for a very long time, so I, I was especially excited to have her on the show today. And just for me, again, it's about shaking up 
the discussion, and it really needs to be shaken up. Because too long, the discussion about China was confined to the academic space. All those white guys in the 70s and 80s still are the readings in the poli-sci department. There's, there's no doubt. And so the fact that we're, we're seeing this enhanced diversity, as Hannah says, decolonizing the discourse is so important. And again, we are part of that. Obviously, you and I are two white guys, right? But we really want to be part of the solution by bringing in all these voices, being part of the expansion of the discourse. And that's something that, you know, on our show, we go to great effort to do. It takes a lot of work sometimes to find different guests who kind of meet those requirements. But that to us is absolutely critical in making this show, the one that we're producing right here, part of the positive change and really not part of the historical exclusion patterns that Keisha says is still very much alive today. And I think that has to be put right out there in the open. Yes, you know, kind of exclusion is is a, is a big part of academic life as a whole. It's a big problem there, you know, across many different fields. Um, and I think I think it's really important to keep in mind that knowledge production is uh, is an industry, um, and you know, it's an industry as 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 the same kind of industry as mining is. You know, and and it um, and and for that reason, like what we know as knowledge. Like the kind of like if you read a Wikipedia page, for example, all of all of those facts, they were all written by people. They didn't just like arrive, you know, from heaven. Um, and those those people are always limited. They always they always have, have a, a limited perspective, and and perspective is particularly also limited by power. And people who make it in academic in the academic space. Um, the people who become like provost of Yale, for example, you don't get there without without having a kind of a a kind of a runway to launch you into into that kind of stratosphere, you know, and 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 that 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 runway is is in part made up of of race and gender, and in in, in more and also by money, you know, kind of like the the you know rich people tend to go to university and they tend to make their children go to university and they tend to fund universities and you know so so that those things need to be taken into account. You know, I know it from my own country in the U.S. how. The history that I was taught growing up, and I grew up in California and I went to high school in Massachusetts, was a decidedly white northern view of history. And now that I have educated myself in the past 10, 15, 20 years just by reading books like Isabel Wilkerson, who just wrote the book on caste, and and she's written some amazing books, or Michelle Alexander on the new Jim Crow, you start to realize that the history that I learned when I was growing up was completely defined by a white narrative and just weirdly, absurdly wrong. And, and that is, again, going back to what Hannah was saying about decolonizing the discourse. And I just, again, I'm going to keep coming back to that because I just think it's so critically important. And by the inclusion of these voices, we're going to shake up so much of the of the international relations and the political science discourse that for too long, like American history, was shaped by people who were all the same. And that diversity is what challenges our worldview. It's one of the things, again, that we try to bring on the show and on the platform at the China Africa Project to bring the Chinese voices, African voices, Caribbean voices. We just had Argentinian voices on. We, we're going to have a show coming up on that. And really bringing in all of these diversities to challenge some of those embedded narratives. Because once those embedded narratives get locked in, as they have been for very long, it just it 
it creates all sorts of problems. And we've seen this in the United States. So for even just the debt trap narrative, you just get locked into that and they can't see anything else. And the nuance gets lost. And I think having these voices from young people, from women, from people of color, from people from Africa, Caribbean, all over, is what the antidote to all of that is. You know, yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and, and the, the, you know, increasing the number of people involved, you know, d definitely helps to, to diversify the conversation and to, and to, to, to help us to, to see kind of certain received ideas or stereotypes as, as what they are. At the same time, I, you know, kind of, I think it's really important for everyone um, and, and us, you know, to, to start to, to pay more attention to the kind of material circumstances surrounding all of this non-knowledge production um you know like uh like uh, you you can't you can't keep economic exclusion neatly separate from gender and racial exclusion like people people uh, you, you know obviously there's a, it's a big wide world out there and people come from many different backgrounds but but you know programs that want to include more women and more people of color need to also take into account that these people frequently come from poorer backgrounds um and that the the particularly at the moment in 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 academia the 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 gap between the the kind of person who is marking your child's exam script you know if your child happens to be at a university and the person who's who's making the decisions about which which books that child is going to be studying those are two different people and the ones marking the script you know are extremely underpaid and they they frequently at like very very um precarious in terms of in terms of you know any kind of like um like employment tenure or, or like health health insurance and and so on and a ton of what we what we think of as commonly shared knowledge as as the kind of knowledge goods of the world are produced by people who are living under extremely difficult circumstances where while other people within that same department would be traveling left and right across the world you know attending very high level conferences so so the, the kind of those in entrenched kind of gaps within academic knowledge production is really complicated and, and they need to be addressed, I think, a lot more explicitly. So one way to do that is through these online databases that are now available. Again, the Black China Caucus has one where you can find all sorts of experts. New Voices has one, and we have one as well, the China Africa Experts Network. We have a couple hundred people predominantly from China and from Africa so we encourage you that if you are looking for these voices, they're not as difficult to find as they were even just a year or two ago because of these online databases. They're fantastic resources out there. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Cobus and I will be back again next week for another edition. Once again, a reminder that if you'd like to sign up for our daily email newsletter and to get access to all of the archive content on our site and the China Africa Experts Network and all of that. Uh, you can subscribe at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Subscriptions start at $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everybody else. You'll get a daily email newsletter that lands in your inbox at 6 a.m. Uh, written by myself and then uh, Cobus puts a column in a couple times a week. And so it's a really great way to stay up with everything that's going on in the China Africa space. And one of the things that we work very hard we're not always successful, but we work very, very hard is to widen the net of voices as 
broadly as we possibly can to make sure that you are getting the broadest part of the discourse possible. So that'll do it. We'll be back again next week for Kobus van Staden. I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. Thank you.